Open your Bibles, if you would, to Proverbs 30. Proverbs 30. We are wrapping up our series in the book of Proverbs. We will have one more lesson on chapter 31, God willing, next week. And uh, the lessons will be yours. I hope, again, that these have been encouraging to you. I know they've been good for me as a student to study and um, look at these Proverbs. Proverbs is is quite unique in the Bible in that they are these short and uh, pithy sayings, um, but it's a, it's a repository of knowledge, and so I hope you will use that as such and come back here and, and create your own study in the book here and, and let it speak to you as the knowledge that it is from God. And tonight, in chapter 30, uh, we have a little bit of a change in Proverbs. We have the words of Agur. Now, up to now, the Proverbs have been those of Solomon. It says there at the very beginning in, so, uh, in uh, chapter 1 and verse 1, the Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel. And then going all the way through to chapter 25, where it says there in verse 1, these are the Proverbs of Solomon, which the men of Hezekiah, king of Judah, transcribed. So there's a few Proverbs there towards the end that uh, were transcribed much later after Solomon was uh, was long gone. And then now we have the last couple of uh, Proverbs, which are two men other than Solomon, Agur in chapter 30 and Lemuel in chapter 31. So we have a little bit different voice. Um, and we'll see that as we go through uh, the words here of Agur in chapter 30. But uh, the pattern of Proverbs still remains the same. They're short sayings. Some of these are a little bit longer than some we've been looking at recently. Um, but the pattern is still there. And so there's wisdom um, that we can draw out of these. And so uh, I hope you will be encouraged by this. Let's look, um, first of all, at um, Agur's credentials. And what I've done for, for this lesson is gone through this, this uh, chapter really uh, sets itself up for um, a pretty clear outline, different things that the author goes to. And so I've uh, attempted to do that as we go through here and look and see uh, each one of these uh, sets of uh, sayings, how they go, uh, go together. And we'll look at some of the similarities and some of the um, uh, messages that are, that are uh, intended here. But let's start with understanding a little bit about Agur. Let's read verses 1 through 4. It says, The words of Agur, the son of Jacob, the oracle, the man uh, declares to Ithiel, to Ithiel and Eucal, Surely I am more stupid than any man, and I do not have the understanding of a man. Neither have I learned wisdom, nor do I have the knowledge of the Holy One. Who has ascended into heaven and descended? Who has gathered the wind in his fist? Who has wrapped the waters in his garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name or his son's name? Surely you know. So here in these first four verses here, we have some rhetoric towards the end. We'll talk about here in just a second. But um, Agur describes himself as, as the oracle. Now, interesting about that word oracle, what it actually means is burden. 
Um, and that, if we define that out, that which is carried or brought. So when we see that word oracle, uh, it, it's uh, sometimes you probably even have a footnote in your, in your Bible there that says burden. And the idea here is that it's a message from God or a prophecy uh, that this one is carrying. And this one is burdened with, if you will. And so this is the message that uh, he is carrying and that he is going to uh, now tell um, to these two that he's uh, mentioning here specifically and, of course, us later down the road. A message from God or prophecy. Interesting about, um, about Agur is there's quite a contrast between him and Solomon. And we can see that very clearly in verses 2 and 3. He says there, surely I am more stupid than any man. Now, do you think Solomon would describe himself as that? Uh, Solomon, of course, we know, was the wisest man. Um, he had knowledge. Verse 3 um, or the end of verse 2, And I do not have the understanding of a man, neither have I learned wisdom, nor do I have the knowledge of the Holy One. Well, that's quite a contrast between uh, this man and Solomon. And Solomon had asked God for knowledge, and God had blessed him with that. So right here from the very beginning, we see a man who has a little bit different uh, outlook. Uh, now I understand that he, you know, being guided by the Holy Spirit, uh, the things he's going to say, but uh, he, he starts off in this way. But what's interesting as he goes through here, uh, as he begins verse 4, who has ascended into heaven and descended? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? You know, these, these rhetorical questions here he's asking, and it's clearly pointing to the wisdom of God. And he comes down there at the, at the very end, he says, surely you know. So it, it seems that that the, these questions are of a rhetorical nature, and, and his audience would know God. And really, he does too. But he is uh, speaking in such a way that uh, I kind of see that I'm just a man. I'm just a common man. But these things I know, these, these questions about God, surely you know who we're talking about. This is God that we're talking about. And so his audience knows God. Surely you know. He knows uh, the audience that he, is, that he is pointing to here in this rhetorical way. Saying, you know God. You know who this is. And so the words that I'm about to speak to you now uh, come from godly wisdom uh, and not from man's wisdom. So that's kind of how he introduces himself and begins his, uh, his group of Proverbs here. The first uh, couple of verses next, uh, verses 5 and 6, talk about the Word of God. It could pick up in our reading, verse 5. Every word of God is tested. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, lest he repu reprove you, and you be proved a liar. The first part of this here is uh, the Word of God is tested. You know, I get the idea of... Uh, battle-tested, um, proven. Uh, the Word of God is not just that um, it exists, but it's proven. And for those who um, abide in it, it's a protection to them. We've talked so much about wisdom throughout the Proverbs. It's, it's over and over and over again. And how the wisdom of God um, protects you from certain things, from pitfalls in this life, and um, really 
disease and, and, and poverty, all, all these things that the Word of God protects one from. So it, it's battle-tested, it's proven. God's Word is that. It is proven. And the idea of the next verse there, that it, it needs nothing from man. Um, it says there in verse 6, Do not add to his words, lest he reprove you, and you be proved a liar. What does God's word need from man? And the answer is obviously nothing. And if you try to add something to that, the, the, the scripture here says that you're a liar. You're going to be proved to be a liar. Because you're trying to add something to God's perfect word. And, and does that ring a bell with you about nothing added, nothing taken away? This is a common thread throughout Scripture. First, we, we go back to Deuteronomy 4 and verse 2, where it says, You shall not add to the word which I am commanding you, nor take away from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you. And we, we know that uh, reference there, very similar language over in Revelation 22, uh, verses 18 and 19, talking about the book of life, those who add to the book of life and those who take away from it. So this idea... Um, you know, that man has anything to add to the Word of God or take away from it uh, is a dangerous notion. And the proverb writer here talks about that. It needs nothing from man. Here, verses 7 through 9, he says, There are two things I ask of thee. So let's, let's read there. Two things I ask of thee. Do not refuse me before I die. Keep deception and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is in my portion, lest I be full and deny, uh, and deny thee, and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be in want and steal, and profane the name of God. So there's two things asked here um, uh, from the proverb writer. Um, one is to keep deception and lies far from me. That's pretty self-explanatory. Uh, keep deception and lies far from me. Um, this goes along with what we're saying about wisdom. Uh, the opposite of that is, is uh, lies and the untruths. And he's, he's, he's asking here, to keep those things far from me. Second part of that, what he's asking, um, give me neither riches, uh, give me neither poverty nor riches. And it's interesting um, that he says, and he goes on to say, feed me with the food that is my portion, lest I be full and deny thee and say who is the Lord. So we get the idea here um, about getting just what you need. Um, there's so many things that we can look at and, 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 and goes along with that about being satisfied with what we need. Not that we need abundance um, and not that we need to be in poverty because those two things have their own uh, pitfalls. Uh, he says there, uh, lest I be full and deny the Lord. So if you, those that are rich and, and wealthy in this, in this life too often forget to thank God, forget to thank um, where it is that these things came from. And the other side of that, uh, lest I be in want and steal. You know, that, that poverty and the going hungry, that brings on a whole other set of problems. So the idea here is that satisfaction lies in not too much, and not too little, but just in the portion that you need. And I think about um, what Paul says in 1 Timothy 6 and verse 8. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. And that comes down to 
um, being content in whatever station of life you're in. Paul talks about that a lot in his writings. Uh, he know how to, he know how to abound. He know how to be without. All these things, um, all these conditions that his life was in, he learned to to be content with that. And that's what I think the proverb writer is is alluding to here: being content with what we have, not too much and not too little. Verse 10 there um, kind of speaks for itself. Do not slander a slave to his master, lest he curse you and you be found guilty. This kind of uh, speaks of what we talked about last week about grabbing a dog by the ears. Uh, you know, it's the idea of not putting your nose in business that it doesn't belong. I think that's kind of what, what is being mentioned here uh, as well. You don't need to get in, the, in between a slave and his master. Um, the outcome there is not going to be good. But all, continuing on after that, verses 11 through 14, um, he now talks about some different kinds of men. So let's pick back up in our reading, verse 11. There is a kind of man who curses his father and does not bless his mother. There is a kind who is pure in his own eyes, yet is not washed from his filthiness. There is a kind, oh, how lofty are his eyes. And his eyelids are raised in arrogance. There is a kind of man whose teeth are like swords, and his jaw teeth like knives, to devour the afflicted from the earth. Uh, so there are four kinds of, of men that are listed here. The first one is the kind that, that curses father and does not bless mother. Um, not too much needs to be said about that, does it? Um, we've read through Proverbs here about the proper attitude uh, that, that one should have towards their father and their mother. And those that curse their father and do not bless their mother uh, clearly um, are, are those who have um, a real darkness in their heart and not understanding the blessings that come from uh, the mother and the father. Yes, there's times when mother and father are, are uh, bad to their kids. But in general principle, um, we have a duty, especially as Christians, uh, to love and to cherish and to take care of our parents when that time comes. There's another kind that's pure in his own eyes. Um, it says, yet he's not washed from his own filthiness. Uh, I think we can recognize that kind of person. We're probably coming up next to that kind of person in our life. Um, that they think quite a bit of themselves in their own eyes, yet um, they haven't been cleaned they haven't given up um, their sin. So we get the idea here of, of, of a hypocrite. Closely related to that, there's one who is arrogant. There is, there is a kind, oh, how lofty are his eyes, and his eyelids are raised in arrogance, verse 13. It goes along right with the, the one who is um, pure in his own eyes. This one is arrogant, how lofty are his eyes. Um, and we know that, that type as well, an arrogant person. And then the last one there, uh, one whose teeth are like swords. Um, I like the way this is expressed. You know, it could be uh, other ways to, to, to say it, but this idea of uh, a mouth just devouring, right? Um, and it reminds me of uh, what Paul says in Galatians 5 and verse 15. But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. And the passage there he's talking about, the liberty that they have under the law of Christ gives them the ability um, 
this freedom, being out from under the law, but he warns them, um, don't let that freedom go too far or you're biting and devouring one another. Because the warning there is that, that someone else will bite and devour you. So I get that idea from, from these verses. Um, his jaw teeth are like knives to devour the afflicted from the earth and the needy from among men. Um, uh, obviously, these are kinds of men um, that are very distasteful. And so he's writing, he's lumping these together, and there's a connection that you kind of see in these. That they're after their own... Um, self-aggrandizing, uh, self-aggrandizement. Um, they're after their own appetites. And so these are the kind of men that he talks about here in these, in these verses. Next he talks about uh, four things that are never satisfied. Back in the, pick it back up in verse 15. The leech has two daughters. Give, give. There are three things which will not be satisfied. Four things will not say enough. Sheol and the barren womb, earth that is never satisfied with water, and fire that never says enough. The eye that mocks a father and scorns a mother. The ravens of the valley will pick it out and the young eagles will eat it. So some very uh, graphic language here, some very uh, uh, clear illustrations of what's, what's, being, what's being said here. First, it's interesting there in verse 15, the leech has two daughters, give and give. Have you ever heard the old uh, expression about real estate? The three most important things about real estate, location, location, location. <laughs> kind of the idea here, isn't it? Uh, the leech has two daughters, give and give. What's, what does a leech do? You know, a leech uh, attaches to your body and sucks blood out of you. I know that's graphic, but that's what he does. Uh, and... He sets up this whole thing about not being satisfied with this picture of a leech. Um, that's what a leech does. And a leech is to be able to survive. That's the food source. That's how they survive. And so that's what's on their mind. And they're never satisfied. Give, give. So he goes on to talk about three and then four. And this is a common um, uh, usage of language in the poetic form here, where he says three things and then four um, but four things are never satisfied. Um, there's the idea that a leech always wants more. But one of those things there is Sheol. And that, of course, is uh, uh, the, the nether world, uh, the, the realm of the dead. Um, Sheol's never satisfied. Um, there's always uh, a wanting of more dead in Sheol. And that's just the way that is. Um, there's uh, the earth that is, uh, what does it say, never satisfied with water. You know, the earth will, will, will drink in the rains, you know, up to the point where it starts flooding, of course. But that idea that there's, uh, it rains down on the earth and the earth just keeps on taking it in and taking it in. And the fire that says never, um, that never says enough. You know, I picture um, wildfires, especially out in California, we see that quite often, and they're so hard to contain once they get out of control, um, and the fire never says enough. As long as the fire has uh, a fuel source, um, it's going to keep burning. So there's that, another example of something that's never satisfied. And then he, he brings this back to really the human side of, the, of this in that 
He says, the eye that mocks a father and scorns a mother. Here again, that is very similar to what was said over there a minute ago about the kind that hates his father, um, curses his father and does not bless his mother. The eye is never satisfied, that mocks the father and scorns a mother. And look what it says there about that. The ravens of the valley will pick it out and the young eagles will eat it. You know, there's a, like I said, very graphic um, uh, consequence for this. But that idea is still the same, that the person that uh, is never satisfied with anything, they're going to always um, tear down people around them, and their mother and father are, are not excluded from that. Never being satisfied. Next he talks about uh, four things that are not understood. Verse uh, 18 beginning through verse 20. It says, there are three things which are too wonderful for me, four which I do not understand. The way of an eagle in the sky, the way of a serpent on a rock, the way of a ship in the middle of the sea, and the way of a man with a maid. This is the way of an adulterous woman. She eats and wipes her mouth and says, I have done no wrong. Oh, um, the first one he talks about here, the things he doesn't understand, the way of an eagle in the sky. Have you ever... Uh, just sat and watched the birds fly around, you know, just think, well, he's going to turn this way, well, then he turns that way, you know. Um, this, you don't know where he's going to go. Um, and same idea with the, this, the serpent on the rock. Um, I've talked about um, being out and have those black racers that come across the, the, the path right in front of me um, when I'm out walking or riding my bike. You know, you don't, you don't know where they're going, but they're cutting right in front of you. Um, and the way of the ship at sea, you know, these, uh, you, you see this um, wondering about these things. Why, why do these things go in the direction that they do? And so then he brings it into the human side of this with the way of a man with a maid. You know, why is it that um, men can get so lost uh, in their pursuits of women? Um, I think that's what he's driving at here. Is it's just like you don't know which way the eagle's going to go. You really don't know which way the man's going to go if he's in the pursuit of, um, of a maid. And he says that, um, verse 20, this is the way of an adulterous woman. She eats and wipes her mouth and says, I have done no wrong. Um, look back with me over in chapter 7 for just a second. It's reminded me of this language when uh, he... When, when Solomon speaks of the, an adulterous woman, and we made mention that there's lots of, uh, of this counsel that Solomon gives about this kind of woman. But here in chapter 7, beginning of verse 6, it says, For at the window of my house I looked out through my lattice, and I saw among the, na the naive, I discerned among, discerned among the youths, a young man lacking sense. So here's this picture of this young man passing through the streets near her corner, and he takes the way of her house in the twilight, in the evening, in the middle of the night, and in the darkness. And behold, a woman comes to meet him, dressed as a harlot and cunning of heart. She is boisterous and rebellious. Her feet do not remain at her home. She is now in the streets, now in the squares, and lurks by every corner. She seizes him and kisses him. And with a brazen face, she says to him, I was due to offer peace offerings today. I have paid my vows. Therefore, I have come out to meet you, to seek your presence earnestly, and I have found you. This whole, can't you just see this? Uh, taking place, this young, naive fool 
who goes out in the streets and uh, is, is going after his own appetite. He's just wandering, like the eagle in the sky, like the serpent on the rock, like the ship at sea. So the proverb writer here says, these things are wonderful to me. Not necessarily wonderful in a good sense, but wonderful as in, I can't understand it. So that's what he's talking about here. The way of a man with a maid. Next he talks about four things that the earth can't bear. Verse 21 in our reading says, Under three things the earth quakes, under four it cannot bear up. Under a slave when he becomes king, and a fool when he is satisfied with food. Under an unloved woman when she gets a husband, and a maidservant when she supplants her mistress. So again, here's, here's four things. A slave when he becomes king that, that the earth can't bear. Can't you just uh, see this as um, in the excitement, uh, the earth-moving nature of these, these events that he's going to talk about? When a slave becomes king, you know, think about how far that person would have come to come out of the ranks of slavery and to become a king and how much uh, uh, celebration, if you would, from, from the outsiders and from him, uh, this earth-shaking uh, event when that person makes that transition. Or when a fool is satisfied with food, um, you know, someone, often we talk about a fool as one who, uh, who doesn't put away, doesn't set aside for the rainy day. Always going, living hand to mouth, we might say, wondering where his next meal might come from. When that fool finally gets food, boy, he's satisfied. That's a, that's a, good, that's a good time for him. Or how about an unloved woman who gets a husband? Um, think about that. Uh, a woman who, who has spent her life being unloved and finally uh, she marries a husband. Think about the, the excitement and the celebration in, in that person's life. And then a maidservant who supplants her mistress is the idea of, um, you know, the maidservant um, becoming more important to the husband uh, than his own wife. And so this, when she supplants him and he looks upon her and, and takes her in whatever situation you might consider there, but she has now supplanted his wife. The maidservant supplants her mistress. And the four things that, that, that would shake the earth uh, in, in this manner. Next he talks about uh, four small but wise things. In verse 24, picking up, it says, Four things are small on the earth, but they are exceedingly wise. The ants are not a strong folk, but they prepare their food in the summer. The badgers are not a mighty folk, yet they make their houses in the rocks. The locusts have no king, yet all of them go out in ranks. The lizard you may grasp with the hands, yet is in the, yet is in the king's palaces. So there's four things here that he mentions. One is, uh, is ants. And, um, you know, the ants look to quite a bit um, in, in, in the Proverbs, in, back in uh, 6, verses 6 through 8. Uh, go to the ant, O sluggard, observe her ways and be wise, which, having no chief, officer, or ruler, prepares her food in the summer and gathers her provision in the harvest. Solomon there is, is using that as an example of being diligent uh, and working. Um, and here, 
uh, Agur is saying the ants are not strong folk, but they prefer, prepare their food in the summer. Very much along those same lines. Small little creatures, but they're diligent in what they do, putting aside the food um, that they will need later on. There's the badgers um, that he says they're not strong folk. Uh, they're not mighty folk, but they make their houses in the rocks. Again, and the diligent um, um, work of this creature who prepares for himself a place that he might, that he might live. And then there's the locusts. It says that they don't have a leader, but they go out in ranks. You think about them flying out. Uh, we don't probably never seen a swarm of locusts in our lifetime. Um, but you can uh, imagine uh, them going out in ranks. And again, these small little creatures that do things uh, so wisely. And then the last one here, I think, is, is really the most um, uh, interesting in what he says here, is, is the lizard. You may grasp it with your hands, yet it's in the king's palaces. You know, we have a lot of lizards around here where, where we live. They're always scurrying about. Um, and if you wanted to, you could reach down and pick one up with your hand, couldn't you? You might chase him around a little bit. Uh, but you could reach down and pick him up with your hand. And the idea is, he says, yet he lives in the king's palace. And if you live here long enough and you have this too, those lizards get inside your house, don't they? It doesn't take very much room for them to get inside your house, and then you're chasing them around inside the house. Uh, but the idea here is that these small little creatures, God's little creatures here, and the things that they do um, are wise. And there's a lot of example and a lot of learning that we can get from, from these little creatures and being diligent um, and putting away, um, you know, saving up for a rainy day. Um, doing things orderly, doing things um, in a proper manner. And then I think with, the, with the, li the lizard in the king's palace is that, you know, don't sweat the small stuff. <laughs> you know, the, the king's palace is supposed to be this opulent uh, place where, the, you know, everything's orderly and put in place and, and clean and neat. Um, yet there's a lizard running around in there somewhere. Uh, so don't sweat the small things. You know, they, in the grand scheme of things, the lizard in the palace doesn't really mean much, does it? Not when it comes to our salvation, not when it comes to uh, the way we would live in this world and the relationships that we would have with one another. Um, don't sweat the small stuff. A couple of last things here uh, he mentions, and these are, are, are pretty self-evident here about these four stately marchers. Beginning verse 29, there are three things which are stately in their march, even four which are stately when they walk. The lion which is mighty among beasts and does not retreat before any. Uh, the strutting rooster, the male goat also, and a king when his army is with him. So really this is just the idea of um, these uh, that move and stately um, creatures that we might see. We think about the lion often, about the king of the jungle, um, and who that, uh, what he represents in, um, in all that he is about the lion, uh, the top of the food chain, the majesty. Um, he says he doesn't back down from any man, and there's a stateliness about him. Uh, strutting rooster uh, and the male goat, same idea, um, is that there's, there's a stateliness about them when they're, when they're marching. 
But then he brings it to the human side of it um, and talks about the king and his army. So there's the stately form in, in mankind um, now that he t brings up about uh, the king and his army. Um, so I think the, the idea here is just is looking at um, these things in nature that are stately and then relating that um, to a king and his army. So there's some final thoughts that he gives here as he closes out um, the chapter. Verses 32 and 33. If you have been foolish in exalting yourself, or if you have plotted evil, put your hand on your mouth. For the churning of milk produces butter, and the pressing of the nose brings forth blood. So the churning of anger produces strife. Um, I love the way this is concluded. Uh, in, in the idea is that, you know, if you've said too much, what can you do? <laughs> Cover your mouth. Uh, if you have plotted evil, put your hand on your mouth. Just be quiet. <laughs> if you think you've said too much, then you probably have. Be careful with the mouth. Be careful with the tongue. We have the teachings that tell us that. Uh, that in James, he talks about how the tongue is, uh, is unbridled, uh, brings about um, so much trouble. So if you said too much, just you know, keep it in. Cover your mouth. Because here's the consequence. With your words, you can churn up strife. He, he relates that to the churning of butter, uh, churning of milk to produce butter, and the pinching of the nose will produce blood. He says there, so the churning of anger produces strife. So with your words, you, know, you have that ability. Uh, you run that risk of, of churning up strife. So... Uh, lots of things in this, isn't there? Lots of uh, wisdom in this, in this little chapter. But so much is the case with Proverbs. Um, next week, Lord willing, like I said, we'll look at uh, the last Proverbs, last of the Proverbs in chapter 31. Um, hopefully we'll be able to spend most of our time talking about the virtuous woman. Um, I think it'll fit in nicely with um, our study in the family. Um, we'll be talking about that um, coming up next week also. So look forward to that study. Appreciate your good attention. And um, we offer an invitation as we do each time we close out our time together. If um, you have needs of this congregation, uh, if there's something weighing on your heart and uh, you need to make that right, I encourage you to make that right. If you need the prayers of the congregation, we can help you with that as well. You can let that be known by coming forward as we stand and sing to encourage you.